Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our February 2022 product event, where you'll hear from Larry Furr. Larry is currently the Chief Product Officer at Canopy. He will be discussing how to own product vision. A big thanks to Lucid for sponsoring this event. So now, let's hear Larry's talk, How to Own Product Vision. Today, the topic that we'll be talking about is how to own product vision or subtitle, how to get the company to trust you with truly owning the product roadmap versus becoming a glorified project manager. And if you're old enough to remember David Letterman, he used to do the top 10 every week. And it was a little gag, top, top 10, whatever. And I thought to start things off, I would do a top 10 in, in, in true David Letterman style, which is basically the top 10 ways top 10 signs rather that you don't really own product vision, or at the very least people don't trust your product vision. And hopefully this will be humorous, but also an opportunity to self-reflect and, and, and maybe ask yourself, is this me? Is this the situation I'm in right now? And, and if you are, don't fret, it happens to the best of us. I've been, hopefully by the end of this presentation, you'll have some really good ideas of, of how to take control of the product vision in your organization. And if you already have control of that, which is great, we'll also talk about some things to not do so that you don't lose that trust and lose that control. Because as product managers, at the end of the day, we really want to be looked at as the experts on, on the market, on the product, and, and, and the voice of what the vision for that product should be. Okay, so without further ado, top 10 signs that you don't really own product vision in your company. Number 10, you get to create a slide deck outlining the product vision. So obviously, <laughs> If you want to own the product vision, you have to start by figuring out what it is and putting that into some sort of a format, whether it's a document or a slide deck, whatever. And if you haven't done that yet, it's probably a good sign that you don't, own, you don't own the product vision at your company. Number nine, you build features tied to deals that the sales team closed without them consulting you first. I put the without them consulting you first here because I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with building features that are tied to deals that you're trying to get closed. Uh, that's actually a big part of product management. It happens all the time, especially if you're like working in an enterprise software company, you're going to inevitably have some massive enterprise deal that isn't going to close without making some roadmap commitments. And I don't want anyone to feel bad about doing that. That's a normal and healthy thing. I have done it many times. The problem is if you as the product manager aren't involved in that decision. If you're just being told after the fact, we close this deal, here's what we promised, make sure you get it done. There's a lot of problems with that. And it's least of which is that it's a sure indicator that you're not trusted to own the product vision. So that's number nine. Number eight is you're not empowered to say no to a feature needed to close a deal. So what's probably more common that I'm sure many of you have experienced is not necessarily than salespeople sell something without talking to you first but that they come and talk to you about it ahead of time. But it's not really so much a question as it is, uh, hey, we're just letting you know. And that again is a big problem. As a product owner and a product visionary, you want to have enough trust from the rest of the company that you can actually say no. You can say, you know what? Like, I know it's a big deal and I realize that we may not get it if we don't commit to this feature, but here's why we can't do it. Here, here's why it's going to disrupt what we're trying to build towards and the vision and the roadmap that we've laid out. And so if you don't have the power to do that, and again, a lot of PMs don't, so I don't want you to feel bad if that's you, but that's probably a sign that you don't own the product vision as much as you'd like to. Number seven, the CEO or founder or fill in the blank uh, person 
is the one telling you and others what to build. This happens a lot when you have a founder CEO, because oftentimes uh, the founder CEO is the first product manager. Sometimes you'll see founder CEO companies don't even hire a product manager for a very long time. And then if you have the challenge of joining a company like that as the first product manager, and I've done that before, it can be really tough to wrangle control of the roadmap and the product vision from that founder CEO, especially because oftentimes founder CEOs are, are subject matter experts on the very industry on which the, the company was founded. And so until you become an expert yourself, it could be difficult to get that trust. But again, until you do that, you don't really own the product vision. And we'll talk about how to do that in a bit. Number six sign that you don't really own the product vision, that your customers dictate what gets built. Now, don't get me wrong. You want to listen to customers. They're, they're one of, if not the most important data point that you have as a product manager determining what the vision should be, what the roadmap should be. However, you're still the product manager. And if you're just doing whatever your customers tell you to do, you have turned yourself into an order taker and not a product visionary. Make sure that you're not just taking all of your action items from your customers. Number five, your marketing website paints a picture of chronic that you've yet to build or may never build. I've been here before too. I worked at a company where our head of marketing, smart guy, he had a real clear vision to where the product needed to be. And he pretty much made a website then talked about the, that future product state. And it wasn't necessarily a bad vision. In fact, I was very aligned with a lot of what he was putting on the website, but there are two big issues there. One is that he was doing that without talking to me about it. Two was that it was going to take a while to fulfill that vision. So we are selling vaporware via the, the website. And the third issue is, and this is the one that really irked me the most, was that we were essentially forecasting or telecasting our product strategy to the rest of the world, including our competitors. And in you know one case, one of our competitors got a lot of funding, so they were better funded than we were. And they basically, I, I believe, you've took a lot of their cues from our marketing website and, and we're able to get there uh, faster than we were. That's a sign that you don't own the product vision. And uh, you want to you want to make sure that your marketing website is not ahead of your vision because it also can you to a quarter now where if you need to make adjustments, and we're going to talk about that later too, because adjustments are a part of product management, it's harder to maneuver if you have already telecasted too much of, of your roadmap and your vision, which is one of the big reasons why I'm not a big fan of having a public roadmap either. Number four, sign that you don't really own the product vision is that your head of product reports to a CTO instead of the CEO or COO. This is this one might hurt for, for a few of you. And I want to say, while it's very common to have a, a, a product organization that, that reports up to a CTO, it's not ideal in my opinion. And I think I'm probably preaching to the choir here. We're all product people. I think we understand that if we want product to have a seat at the table and be viewed as very strategic to the company, that the best way for that to happen is to ensure that your head of product is to reporting to the CEO or, or in some cases, the COO, depending on the executive team structure. And it's not to say that if you're reporting up to a CTO, that it's the end of the world. I've, again, I've done that before in my career. In my case, I, I was fortunate that the CTO I was reporting to was giving myself and the rest of the product team a lot of leeway and a lot of trust to own the product vision, but it's still not ideal. And I would encourage you, if you find yourself in that situation, see if there's ways that you can help the CEO of the company understand why it's so important to have that head of product reporting up to your CEO. Because again, if you're not, if you're not in that position, 
then it suggests that it's not really product that is driving the vision and the roadmap. It's actually the technology folks at the company. And in some cases, that's appropriate depending on what your product is. If your product is like a very techie sort of product or something being built for other technologists, it may make a lot of sense for a CTO to be running product development and product strategy. But in many cases, I just don't think it's the ideal situation. And it probably is an indicator that you don't own the product vision as much as you should. The number three sign that you don't really own product vision is that you're not presenting the product vision to anyone. No one's asking you to, internally or externally. That's a big red flag. You should be talking about product vision to everybody all the time. You should be getting invited to sales kickoff meetings to talk about the product vision. You should be getting invited to customer-facing events and summits that your company runs to talk about the product vision. You ought to be talking to marketing teams and really anyone that will listen about what the product vision is. And if you're never doing that, if the only thing people are really asking you about is when is this thing going to be done or get released, you don't really own the product of it, uh, the product vision. Number two sign that you're not only the product vision is that your engineers second guess all of the requirements that you write. Um, again, I've been there. This is, if this has happened to you, don't feel bad. It's just a sign that you haven't earned the trust of your engineers yet. And, and it's not to say that there's a difference between engineers asking questions and wanting to understand and engineers just not trusting you or believing what you're talking about. The latter is problematic. And it's something that I experienced early in my career. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on and, and how to fix that problem. Because as much as you might want to think it's your engineers that are the issue, it's probably you as the product manager. And we'll talk more about that. And finally, the number one sign that you don't really own product vision is that people refer to you as a project manager. Sometimes that's just out of ignorance, but in many cases, folks just don't know the difference. And if they don't know the difference, it's time for you to help them understand what the difference is. Nothing against project managers. I've actually had that title at one point in my career. It's a great job. It's just a lot different than product management, as I think you all know. And if folks think that your job is just to run a Gantt chart, then you probably aren't owning product, the product vision. So. Those are my top 10. Let's now talk about how we ensure that we can earn people's trust and own the product vision. And I'm going to start by going over a couple of things that you should not, and these are surefire ways that you're going to lose trust very quickly. The first is thinking that your job is having all the ideas. It actually isn't. It, I've had many conversations with aspiring product managers and a coming uh, question I like to ask them is why do you want to become a product manager? What is it that appeals to you? And more often than not, the answer I get is, I want to be the guy in charge. I want to be the one calling the shots. I've got lots of big ideas. I want to be deciding what gets built and what doesn't get built. And I'm always quick to point out to those folks that product management isn't actually about having all the ideas. What it's about is listening to everyone else's ideas. There are no shortage of ideas and opinions that people will share with you about what you should build and when you should build it. The trick of being a product manager is figuring out which of those ideas are good and then determining what order to do them in. And so if you're getting into product management because you're a visionary person, you've got big ideas and things you want to build, I would actually tell you not to get into product management and to go start your own company instead, because that's really more the mantra of a founder, not necessarily a product manager. If you think that you're the wealth of all the big ideas in your company, you're going to have a hard time as a product manager because you're going to constantly be butting up against the ideas of, of your, your CEO, especially if your CEO is a founder and everyone else. So again, you don't actually have to have any ideas as a product manager. It's almost better if you don't. It's better if you're a blank slate and you just gather a lot of information and a lot of ideas from other people 
And then again, we're, then what you want to do is use your knowledge and your strategy and, and the research that you've done to figure out which of those ideas are going to help propel your product forward and make your company successful. So if you think that you're the wealth of knowledge on all ideas, there's a good chance that you're messing up. Um, so don't do that. Kind of related to that is being overly confident in your product roadmap. Now, don't get me wrong. You need to have conviction in your product roadmap. But what you don't want to do is just lull yourself into a false sense of security that once you've created a roadmap, your work is done and you're just in execution mode now. You should always be doubting your product vision, always be doubting the, the prioritization that you currently have. Argue against yourself. At Canopy, our product team, we get together and like we will purposefully take opposing viewpoints on something just to make sure that we're looking at it all the different ways. And when we do that, what we find is that we end up coming to better conclusions. Prioritization, I always tell my team, is it's not a one and done activity. It's a never ending activity. You're constantly getting new data points from a variety of different areas. And, and you can't be scared of changing priority based off of new data. It doesn't mean that you're bad at your job if you change priority, it actually means you're good at your job. It means that you are reacting to new data points that challenge the assumptions that you made yesterday. And don't get overconfident in your product roadmap. Make sure that you're making those adjustments. A lot of times I see this happen with product managers. Again, I've made this mistake as well. You have something on your roadmap, you've already done the research, you've got mockups, you've got requirements, it's ready to go. And then you get some new information that makes you realize that thing, while important, is probably not the most important thing to build next, but it's ready to go. So you, the, the temptation is to build it anyways, because you know how much work it's going to be to get something else ready for development. Now, don't get me wrong. It's better to work on the second most important thing that's fully researched out than the most important thing that is not researched out. The biggest, most expensive mistake you make as a product manager is having engineers work on something that you haven't fully researched as a product manager, because chances are you're going to get it wrong and you've now wasted valuable resources. But if you have time to go do that research and get something ready that isn't yet ready, you should always do that if you've determined it's the most important thing based off of new information. So don't be lazy. Listen to those data points that suggest that maybe you need to reprioritize. All right. Next thing not to do is coming into the company with a chip on your shoulder, feeling like you should have full autonomy around all things product vision and roadmap. Now, don't get me wrong, but the whole goal of this we're talking about today is to get to that point where people do trust you and you do own the product vision, but you have to earn that. It doesn't just come with the job title. You may think that it should, but it doesn't. And it, you may even get that trust at first, but if you don't make the right moves, you're going to lose it very quickly. So what you have to realize is when you're running a product organization, you're essentially determining what all the engineers are going to work on. And in most companies, especially if it's a startup VC backed company with a lot of money going into R&D, engineering is probably the single most expensive line item in the company budget. With that, you should expect there to be scrutiny. You should expect that people are going to want to know whether or not you're having those very expensive resources work on the right thing. And you should expect to justify your decision-making and your roadmap to people all the time. So remember that trust is earned through performance. It's not just granted the old Uncle Ben, Peter Parker talk with great power comes great responsibility. You do have great power as a product manager, being able to chart out what the product vision and roadmap is, has great power, but there is responsibility there as well. And that responsibility is you have to earn that trust and maintain that trust 
And we're going to talk about some of the things that you can do to make sure that's happening here in just a moment. Okay, the next thing not to do is do not be defensive when people challenge you. Owning the product vision comes with a lot of scrutiny. Embrace that. If no one is ever challenging your roadmap, I want to tell you right now, it's not because you're a genius. It's because people think it's going to waste their time. It's because based on past experience, they don't think you're going to hear them. They think you're going to disregard them. They think that you're too thick-headed or too egotistical to hear what they're actually saying. So don't think that you've arrived if no one ever challenges your roadmap. Realize that you're doing something really wrong and that you need to figure out what it is. People are going to challenge you all the time. That's how it works. Everyone's got an opinion about what should be getting done. Again, embrace that. Use that as an opportunity to share with them all of what's gone into your decision-making process. As you do that, that's what builds confidence uh, in your ability to properly prioritize the backlog. And again, we'll talk some, in some more details on how you actually do that. And then lastly, thing not to do, don't forget about showing the results of your releases. You want to be tracking every new feature that goes out, seeing what the usage of that, using analytics to measure whether it was successful or not. If you're not doing that, you really don't know. You're just throwing features over the wall and assuming that they're getting used. Everyone has opinions. Data is greater than opinions. And a great way to demonstrate to the company that the things that you're prioritizing are the right things is to be able to come back and show them after the fact, here's this feature that we released. Here's what usage looked like. Here's the impact it's having on customer satisfaction or on new sales or on retention or expansion. Being able to tie what you're doing as a product manager to those data points and metrics that the company tracks is uber important to being able to earn that trust and retain it. All right, so we talked about what not to do, give uh, a little bit of a sneak peek into what to do. Let's talk now about how you can own the product vision at your company. Okay, first is you need to obsess over understanding the market. If you're working at a really big company, you probably have a product marketing team and they're probably doing a lot of this already. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be involved as a product manager. And if you're at a smaller company where there isn't a product marketing group, you absolutely need to do this. You essentially are wearing a product marketing hat, whether you realize it or not. And if you're not understanding your market, there's just no way that you can build a product for it. As we know, product management's all about finding and maintaining product market fit. The first step to that is understanding the market so that you can fit your product to it. So that means you need to know everything about the market that there is to know. And you need to be able to articulate all of that to the rest of the company. So once you've done all your market research, you can start to put together a SWOT analysis of the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats for your product. And that should be in a slide deck. And you should constantly be revisiting these things because markets are fungible. Markets are ever evolving. So what was true about your market today isn't going to be true about it tomorrow. New competitors arrive. Competitors release new stuff. They're, they're trying to get product market fit as well. There's government regulation that maybe changes things. There's new trends. There's lots of things that are happening all the time that change your market. And you need to understand that as a product manager and be adapting your product vision and your product roadmap to take advantage of the market changes that are happening. So make sure that you understand the market extremely well. Be the expert in the company. Again, this is the hardest thing about joining a company where you have a CEO founder because chances are they came from the market that you're in. And if you haven't worked in that market before, it, you're at a disadvantage on day one, but you wanna close that gap as quickly as possible. Always be doing your market research and knowing how to talk about it within the company. Related to this is you need to obsess over delighting your customers. So a good way to understand your market is to understand the customers that are within it. You wanna become the voice of the customer. That means you have to talk to your customers all the time. 
you should visit them if at all possible. I know COVID makes that more difficult, but if you've got customers that live close by, maybe where you can drive to their, to their office or drive to where they're at, you should do that. If you're doing, if you're a B2C product, you should be doing focus groups and surveys and finding ways to talk to your customers, understand what they want, what their pain points are, what their desires are, what gets them jazzed, what gets them bummed out. Again, these are things that product marketing organizations will do at a really large company, but you should participate in that as a product manager. And again, if you don't have product marketing people, you're the one that needs to come up with user personas and buyer personas. You're the one that needs to, to be able to explain to the rest of the company, your sales and marketing people, this is the profile of our customer. These are the different types of personas that exist. And this is what makes them. And if, again, if you're not doing that, I don't know who you're building the product for. So it's, you need to obsess over getting to know your customers because only then can you delight them with the right product. And when you do your product research, please do not lead the witness. Leading the witness means you're asking them questions that will elicit the response that you want to get. And I see a lot of PMs do that. They have an assumption about how something should be done. And they say, yeah, I'm going to go do product, product research or, or user research. But then I'll watch them ask all their questions. And I can tell really quickly that they're just asking questions that are going to confirm their assumptions. They're not actually looking for new information. That's a big mistake. I will tell you right now, if every idea that you have, you get a thumbs up from your customers, you're not doing it right. No PM bats a thousand. So if you don't, if you're not getting information from your product research that challenges your assumptions and suggests that you made some wrong assumptions, you're not asking good questions. So get really good at asking good questions and uncovering the truth of what your customers want and need. Kind of related to that is communication. I put it three times here. You probably uh, are familiar that real estate agents have a little saying that three most important things in real estate are location. The three most important things in product management, I believe, are communication. Uh, now, granted, I, I got a bachelor's degree in communication. I'm a little biased, but I would challenge you to tell me something more important in, in product management than that. Because again, as a product manager, you need to figure out what your market is and what product to build for it. And you just can't do that without talking to a lot of people and listening to a lot of people. Communication is two-way street. So if you can't convince people that you know what you're talking about, then you're really just an order taker. You need to communicate to your customers, of course. We talked about that. But you need to communicate to everyone within the, or everyone within the company, I should say, every department within the company. A big mistake that I see a lot of product managers make is that they think that they only work with engineering. And I've seen product managers that are phenomenal at communicating to engineering. They have the trust of the engineers. They're working with QA. They're working with UX design. And they're building beautiful features that are well-researched out. And, and then once the deploy happens, they're on up to the next communication is not just for developing products. It's also about launching your products. And you need to be talking to everyone and go to market to make sure that the reason you built that product, that feature, um, that the vision that you have for that is understood by everybody in marketing and sales and CFs, because if they don't understand it, if you haven't evangelized them on your vision and the reason that feature that you just released helps fulfill that vision, then they don't know how to support it. They don't know how to implement it. They don't know how to trade it. They don't know how to sell it. They don't know how to market it. They don't know how to talk about it. It's essentially, if you're building features and you're not communicating with go-to-market on how to launch those features, it's like you've created this amazing party that you've, you've got a DJ, you've got caterers, you've got decorations, and then you forgot to invite anyone to the party and you're there all by yourself. And that's what happens when you release a feature without having to go to market plan in place. And you don't have to come up with a go-to-market plan. You just have to work with the people who do that work. And, and again, a lot of PMs make this mistake. 
They get all focused on building the product and releasing the product. And they think once they've released a feature or a product, their job is done. Your job is just begun. You now have to make sure that goes to market successfully. And that actually starts well ahead of the release date. So don't shortchange your go-to-market folks by telling them about a feature too late where they can't prepare the proper materials to do a good job of supporting, selling, and marketing it. All right, next, you need to listen to everybody. So we talked earlier about communication and the important talking to people. But again, communication is a two-way street. you got to listen as well. If you're only talking, you're broadcasting. You're not having conversations. And everybody has information worth retrieving. Your job is to ask the right questions to get that information. So talk to everyone within the company. Finance, talk to them about what are your concerns? What kind of metrics are you guys seeing? As a product manager, you should understand the SaaS unit economics as an example that your company is using and how your product releases and your product vision tie in to hitting the numbers that you want to hit there. How can we reduce CAC as a product team through product releases? If we can build more self-service, how can we get the lifetime value up? Maybe we can get some opportunities for expanding the product and having add-ons with additional things that can be sold. You want to make sure that you're talking to your finance folks, your chief revenue officer, uh, about these sorts of things. Obviously, I think I don't need to tell anyone, you should be talking to your support folks to understand what sorts of complaints they're getting from customers, talking to your sales team to understand what kind of objections are coming up during the sales process. And as you do this, and as you listen, what you're doing, first and foremost, is you're figuring out what to build and what should be prioritized. But what you may not realize you're also doing is you're building trust. People want to know that you're listening to them. They don't want to convince, they don't want you to convince them that you're right. They want to be convinced that you're hearing their opinions and that you're taking their opinions and having them help inform your product vision and your strategy and your roadmap. So you need to make sure you're listening. And again, similar to when you're talking to customers, don't leave the witness. You need to really be open to having your mind changed. You need to make sure that as you're listening to people that you don't go in there just thinking that this is all about convincing them that you're right. It's really about learning something that maybe you didn't already know. And, and if you're open to having your mind change, and if you're validating the opinions that people are giving you, they will start to trust you. And, and you will start to really truly own that product vision in a way that you didn't before. Next, be really transparent and share lots of information. We work extremely hard as product managers. I would argue that we're some of the hardest working people, if not the hardest working people in a company. Again, when I talk to people who are aspiring product managers, one of the things I ask them is, do you love working like all the time? Do you love constantly thinking about work? Do you want to have a job where you can go in and have a to-do list and at the end of the day, everything's crossed off? Because if that's the kind of job you want, you probably won't like product management because we all know product management, you can go to work, you have a list of five things to do. And at the end of the day, you haven't done none of that and you've added 10 more. Uh, so there's a lot of work that we do as product managers. And this is important because it's what helps us make good decisions. But if nobody knows about it, if you're not helping people understand the process you're going through and the work that you're doing to get to those decisions, then people just assume it's not happening and people don't trust what they cannot see. That's a, that's a very common human flaw that we all have. We don't trust the things that we don't know. We don't trust the things that we can't see. This is even more important if you're working remotely, which many of us are now. They can't see you working. They can't see you at your desk pounding out emails or talking to customers or doing focus groups. For all they know, you're playing video games all day long and then throwing together a product roadmap. So how do you overcome that? Make everything available to everybody. You're not just your roadmap, but your customer research notes, your requirements that you've written, 
your market data that you've researched out. Get this stuff into places and repositories where anyone can see it. Don't get me wrong. Most people aren't going to look at any of it, but just knowing it's there, knowing how to find it, seeing the breadth of the research and the work that you've done will help others to trust and see, oh, wow, this product team is doing a lot of work. Their opinions aren't just opinions. They're actually based on real research, more research than I've done. And as you share those things with people, it's super important. So a couple of things that we do at Canopy. We use Slack. I'm sure many of you do as well. We have a Slack channel. All of the customer feedback goes in there, both from support as well as our own research notes. And it's shared with anyone at the company that wants to see it. They can all go and read it. Again, most people don't, but it is all there. And you can't look at that and, and not see the tremendous amount of research that the product team is doing. We also have a, a roadmap that we share with everybody. Our requirements are shared with everybody. We often, when we're working on something, before we even start to work on it, we will go and show our mockups and our requirements to different stakeholders of the company on sales and marketing and CS to get their input on it. When you do that, you're inviting people along on the process or journey of coming up with your product vision. And, and that is what leads to them starting to buy into what you're doing, which takes me to my next point. Always be driving for consensus. As you get all your information, there comes a point at which you've got it all. You now have conviction over what needs to get done. And you're now into info dissemination mode, which means you're becoming a product evangelist and you're getting people excited about your vision. That's a lot easier to do if you were helping people come along during the information gathering mode. Now, I'm not saying that you drag your head of sales, your head of CS to every customer interview. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that during your discovery process of coming up with what needs to get built, what's going into your roadmap and how that ties into a product vision. If during that process, you have checkpoints with key stakeholders within the company and you're bouncing off of them, what you're seeing, what you're finding, and you're hearing their thoughts and helping uh, to address those, then you, they have now witnessed your process. And when it comes time that you're, that you've said, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's what the roadmap is. Here's how it ties into our vision. They're, they're going to, they're going to be all on board because they watched you every step of the way and, and they see all the work that you've done. They have access to it. And so they're not going to challenge you. And a really great way to do this is to do lots of one-on-ones with folks that are important. The thing that I see product managers do sometimes, which is a horrible mistake, is they'll invite a ton of stakeholders into a big meeting to show them some documents and requirements and mock-ups they've come up. And it's the first time anyone in that room is seeing any of what the product manager is presenting. And what do you think happens? Well, people start freaking out because they see, oh my goodness, here's a really well-polished, ready-to-go requirements document and mock-ups, and I've had zero input on it. And I have opinions about this thing. And I'm concerned that this person has never heard my opinions because they never asked about them. And so they start giving you their opinions and everyone else in the room is doing the same thing. That makes you look dumb as a product manager. And that's a surefire way to lose everyone's trust. What you want to be doing is meeting with those few people one-on-one -on -one prior to that meeting, getting all their objections out on the table, showing them what you're doing, answering their questions, tailoring your message to them. And then you get them all in a room together. And, and at this point, you're just checking the box and you show them everything and everyone's going to give you a thumbs up because you already talked to them in private. You've already gotten all of their objections out of the way. And now you look like a really genius product manager because everyone is seeing everyone else in the room look at each other and saying, yeah, they got it figured out. That's the right thing to do. So please use that tactic because it, it's huge. And you really want to make sure that when you're presenting something in a large group setting, especially company group setting, that the response is yes, that, that you got it. That's right. We are on board. 
And that only happens, or at least it's much more likely to happen if you invite people along the way to share their opinions, share their concerns, ask their questions. This is especially important for your engineer. I made the mistake, my very first product management job, I had, I, every time I would go in and we would do what we called like a kickoff for a new feature, I would come in with all my requirements and I would show them to the engineers and they would start poking holes like crazy. And I would get so upset and I was, I would stress me out so much to go into these meetings. And I thought it was because my engineers were all jerks. I was really the jerk as I figured out after a while, because I was treating my engineers basically like order takers, like, like contracted developers, instead of actually members of the team, I wasn't giving them the opportunity to be a part of the solution process. I wasn't bringing problems to them and asking them for their opinions. And when I started doing that, and I, and I, I didn't start doing that until someone else set me aside and told me the right way to do it. When I started doing that, it was a game changer. Because now, not only was I getting buy-in from the engineers when it was time to work on something, I was actually coming up with better requirements because the engineers were asking questions early on that I wasn't considering that made my requirements better, that made me go and, and do research that I would have otherwise done. They oftentimes are coming up with much better solutions for how to solve a problem than I was coming up with on my own. So invite your engineers along the discovery process and, and you'll get a lot more buy-in and you'll have a lot less heartache when it comes time to do stuff and you'll ultimately build better products for your customers. And, and that's, again, that's how you get to the point where your engineers now trust you and they're not second guessing everything that you tell them, because we know engineers are super analytical. They're super logical. They have opinions. And if all they see is you, as just a person that comes <clears throat> to them with requirements based on opinions, they're going to think, well, I have opinions too. Why, why are your opinions better than my opinions? But if you bring them along the journey and they see the work that you're doing to get to know the market, the customer, and that they know that your vision and your requirements are based on sound research and judgment, then they start to really respect you and admire you in that role. And they trust you to be that product visionary. And lastly, you need to embrace data-driven decision-making. So again, everyone has opinions. What makes yours, what makes yours better is if your opinion is based on a lot of data. So again, analytics are most if you do not have analytics in your product today, after this call, I want you to go figure out how to get that done immediately. There's a lot out there. I don't care which one you use. Get the cheapest one that you can find. Make it, it can be free. Just get something into your product that allows you to see how much usage you're getting. That is going to open up a world of data to you. That's going to ensure that you make better decisions about where you need to go with your product. Figure out how to quantify all of your customer work. Canopy, we just recently implemented a, a tool called User Voice. It allows us to get information in there directly from customers or on their behalf via our customer-facing teams. And what was truly cool is that you start to get a count of how much people are asking for different things and you can even plug it into Salesforce and see what the SaaS value is, the subscription value is for each of those customers asking for those features. So you can start to put dollar figures on feature requests. That's a really important data point and helps ensure that you're not just going by your gut. And then last but not least, make sure that you're talking to a ton of customers. Don't just let a few customers drive your prioritization. This can happen sometimes in a large enterprise where you maybe only have a couple of customers and a couple of them make up 50% of your revenue. But if you're selling to SMBs, if you're selling to consumers, you have to talk to a much larger sampling of your population in order to make sure that you're making good data decision, uh, data-driven decisions. So make sure that you send out surveys with something we do a lot of Canopy to gut check ideas that we have. Make sure that you're talking to as many customers as you possibly can. And with that, you're going to make better data-driven decisions.
All right. I've been talking a lot. I appreciate everyone's attention. There's probably things that I missed. So I apologize for that. I have so much time to talk. And this is a topic I could probably talk about for many hours, but would love to answer any questions that, that folks might have. All right. Great. Thanks, Larry. Yeah. Sebastian, go ahead and ask the question you have. Yes. Thank you. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, you can. Yep. So I'm, I'm struggling to find the best way to gather customer feedback, mainly because our organization has a lot of customer facing outlets, mainly because we do heavy training to, to use our system. And so we have not only sales and support, but we also have this whole training and implementation aspect. And then even when we're done training, we have this separate client for life division that's keeping people engaged and trying to find out what they, so as a product person, I'm trying to figure out the best ways to tie that all together. And I'm wondering if anybody here has had, had uh, similar concerns with creating proper customer feedback loops. I'll, I'll take a step with this and, and happy to have others share as well. Personally experienced this, but I, I, there's a company I advise and the chief product officer there was running into a, a similar problem. It was an enterprise software company and the CSMs were very protective of the account relationship. And it was difficult for this CPO and his team to really get access to customers. So similar kind of thing, a lot of training, a lot of implementation. And the feeling was we're, we're going to own this and we'll let you know, like product team, like what we hear. And, and I told him like, that's a big problem. Like you, you got to get that fixed. And, and thankfully I, I also advised the CEO there. So I was able to tell the CEO, go fix this problem and make sure that your head of CS knows that the product team needs access, direct access to the customers. And the way they ended up doing it is the product managers actually started sitting on some of these trainings and implementations that were happening. So they could see firsthand what was happening. They were just a fly on the wall. The, the kind of gentleman's agreement with the CSMs where we're not going to come in. We're not going to start asking a ton of questions and disrupt from what you're trying to do. But we are, we're, we just want to be an observer and we want to take some notes. And then we'll come back on our own time and do our research as needed. And, and that's been, you know, helpful for them to be able to get the access to the data they need. I'm not sure if that works for your situation that you're asking, but that, that's something that I've seen done elsewhere. Anyone else want to help answer that question? I'll say that it's great to get every one of those outlets to be bringing you information. If uh, your success team can be recruiting beta customers to test things for you, they can be building lists for you to run surveys to. I try to meet with support and with success and with sales every other week so we can tell them what we need and try to help them in some ways as well. Totally agree. Yeah. I, I like to try to turn everybody into a product manager if I can. And so I've used a similar tactic with support teams. Give me your top 10 list and I tell you, you tell me like, what are the top 10 most important things that we could do in the product right now to make customers happy. And, and that kind of forces them to think more strategically because otherwise I'm sure many, you just get whatever the most recent fire is, whatever customer they just got off the phone with that yelled at them about something is the most important thing. And that changes after each phone call. So if you can get them to get together as a team and say, here's what we're hearing, here's the trends that we hear, bring that to you, super helpful. That, that takes the burden off of your plate. Right. To that point, Larry, we had a similar situation with our CS team, very protective of the customers. Won't let the product team call them up, won't let them interface with the customers at all. They always need to be on the call with them. What we found worked really well was to involve them in the process and make a better relationship between the CS team and the product team and help them feel like product owners, like they have a say in how this uh, system gets developed, how the features get deployed. And as that trust builds, I've seen them open up more and, and 
trusting us to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations, one-on-one -on -one research with customers. So that's a yeah, great point and good to see you, Josh. It's been a while. There's a question that came through. Sorry, was someone else going to say this? No, yeah, I was just going to say on the chat. So if yeah. you want to go ahead and address it, go for it. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. So someone asked about sending out surveys. When do you, do you do that when you're considering the feature based on a few data points or when, how do you leverage those surveys during your process? A great question. We, so I realize that not everyone can do this. We have a, at Canopy, we have a very rabid user base that like loves everything that Canopy is doing. And they see us as the saviors of accounting software because we're making cool cloud software and they're stuck with like old desktop software. So they're very open to helping us and we take full advantage of that. So we'll send out like a survey in app and within an hour, we'll have like a 20% response rate, which is amazing. And you instantly have like hundreds and hundreds of people responding. So we use it all the time and we'll send out, for example, we were looking at what bookkeeping tools should we integrate with? We send out a survey and ask people, what bookkeeping tools do you use? And, and we very quickly were able to get a very clear idea of the most common bookkeeping tools that were being used and which ones to, to target first. We also on our UX team, we use a tool called Maze, which allows you to send out mockups that are clickable and you give someone a little exercise to do and you see kind of where they click and how they do with it. And, and you can they use that to figure out whether or not they've got their designs figured in, figured out or not. So that's a great tool for finding user experience issues early on. We use surveys to ask people if we've got a couple of different ideas that we're trying to determine which ones are going to be most impactful. We'll send surveys out to, to ask people to tell us how important those things are to them. So there's a variety of ways that we use surveys to answer the question. And we use them throughout all different points within the, the overall kind of like discovery lifecycle for new features. But we can get away with that because again, we have a very tolerant user base that, that like wants to participate and help. I know, it, you know, in some companies I've worked at, that wasn't the case. You had to be a little more choosy as to how often you pestered your users with surveys. So that's the answer for us, but happy to, you know, have others uh, share any experiences or results they've had. And then okay. there's a question here from Aaron. Can you talk more to why the head of product should be reporting to the CEO versus the CTO? For me, it's just, I don't want what I'm saying to get filtered through a CTO. And again, I don't, there, there are plenty of companies where product reports up to a CTO and it works flawlessly. So I'm not trying to pretend that it doesn't. But my preference is as a head of product, I want to be the guy talking to the CEO. I don't want that filtered through somebody else. And, and oftentimes CTOs are phenomenal technologists, but they don't have the sort of background and training that product managers have around understanding markets, understanding customers, understanding product. They may be able to learn it. Some of them do, and, but many of them don't. And I, th I just think it's a bad a bad situation if you have a technologist filtering everything product related up to your CEO. So personally, I like to have that direct line of communication for myself and my team. All right. Here's a question. Ben. Love the idea of bringing engineers into discussion. Since you also want to maximize the amount of time engineers are working, what does this look like? Have you seen a system that works really well? Yeah, I agree. You want to de definitely not distract your engineers too much from coding, but I also think that the time spent in including them in the discovery process usually makes it so that when they do start building, uh, actually doing the coding, that they go faster because they understand the problems that they don't make mistakes. They don't get themselves into, paint themselves into quarters, so to speak. You, you, it, it almost uh, becomes this thing where the, they have less time coding, but the time that they spent coding is more efficient because they understand the problem better. So 
What's worked well for me, and, and this again, is not something I take credit for, but I work with a really talented program manager at a system where you would spend, I think it was uh, around 20% of the engineering time would go to the discovery process. And that was mostly done in the form of what he called, I'm sure many of you are familiar with grooming session. And you'd do those on a cadence that could be usually once a week is ideal. And it's a time that you get your engineers in a room and you're talking to them about stuff that's still kind of information. So you might have a skeleton of some requirements and good understanding of what the problem is maybe a wireframe, maybe, but you put that in front of the team and you get their thoughts and, and you hear their questions. And usually out of that comes some research for both you and for the engineers. For you as a product manager, you need to go do some more research to answer the questions the engineers ha add. For the engineers, they might do a little research to, to figure out what the feasibility of, of doing this thing is or what it might take. And then in the next grooming session, things are a little bit more baked. You, everyone comes back with what they found since last time and you start to see the requirements get a little bit more fleshed out. The, the mock-up starts to harden a little bit. And if you can do that for a small feature, it might only take one, maybe two grooming sessions. For a large kind of epic, it might take multiple grooming sessions. But if you can do that and get into that habit, then when it actually comes time to plan your work, what you have are requirements that are like really hardened because they've been through several grooming sessions where everyone got to ask questions of poke holes um, and understand the problem that was trying to be solved. And, and now it's not, not only... Have you been thinking about it for a month or two, but your engineers have as well. They've been having shower epiphanies about how to do it and how, what they're going to have to change in the database or what have you, and how they're going to implement it. And, and their development's going to go much faster. And I think you're going to find the time spent on including them during the process is going to be inconsequential because they're going to make up for it by, by implementing those requirements much quickly, much more quickly and much more efficiently. All right. I think we're about out of time, but I'm, I'm happy to stay on for a few more minutes and answer any other questions that there might be. I have one. I'm a UX designer and I'm just curious, what is my part in helping on a product vision? Your part is a, as a equal co-conspirator with the product manager. And I'm glad that you asked that question, Ashley. I see a lot of product managers that treat their UX designers as subordinates instead of peers and partners. And I think that's a big mistake. I think a UX designers should be involved in every step of the way in talking, especially talking to customers, but also talking to stakeholders within the company and really being involved with a lot of the same things the product manager is doing. The difference really in many ways between a designer and a product manager is the output, but the inputs are all very similar. And you want the designer and the product manager to have many of the same inputs, even though, you know, one's creating requirements and one's creating mockups and designs. And if you have that kind of relationship between a PM and a designer, that's when you see the best products get built. A big thanks to Larry Furr for presenting and again to Lucid for sponsoring the event. If you learned some things from Larry's talk, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.